The title of this message today is Through Conflict. Anybody here like conflict? Woo! Conflict. Um, I remember one time I had this thing with my dad where I kept on. Well, actually, the early, my earliest memory is actually a conflict with my dad. And I was, I think, two, maybe two and a half. And I remember being in the high chair. And I had told my mom, like, I, I, don't, I don't think I could really even speak at this point. But I remember my mom trying to feed me, and I refused to eat. Like, I'm not eating. Not going to. And my mom, I remember saying, well, you just wait till your dad comes home. So my dad comes home, and there's the food, and I'm sitting in the high chair. And I, I firmly remember this, my dad grabbing my chin, opening my mouth, and was trying to put, like, potatoes down my mouth, right? And I just kept looking at him and, like, just spitting them out. I'm like, I'm not going to eat it. I'm not going to do it. And I think, I think we sat there for, like, an hour. Cold food. I'm like, I'm not going to do it. Anyway, I just want to say, Dad, if you're watching this, um, I won. I won that day. No, but, but anyway, like, my earliest memory is a conflict. And I was listening to this guy talk a while ago. It's a couple of years ago. And he was talking about how when we have conflict with people, that conflict gets scary when it feels like a win or lose situation. So it's going to be like, if I lose this conflict, like, the stakes are way too high. And when we get into that space, it becomes either this fight or flight motion, Right? I'm either getting out of here because I don't want to die, or I'm fighting for everything that's mine. But God's intention for conflict is actually good. It's supposed to be something that brings you into more life, more encouragement. But sometimes what happens is we've experienced conflict unhealthy. People not treating each other well. When the tensions go up, the insults go up. It gets hard. And that's not God's model for conflict. So here's this church in the city of Corinth, which is like almost southern Greece. And Paul had spent a year and a half with them, hanging out with them, showing them all about Jesus, who he was, what he's done. A year and a half, he spent almost more time with Corinth than almost anywhere else. He leaves, and another guy shows up named Apollos for another six months, and they're just preaching, and they're just sharing Jesus and talking about make Jesus the leader of your life, believe in him, let the seed of faith touch in your heart, and, and salvation and transformation. God's got his beautiful things for your life, for your family. And they, they accepted Jesus, but then here was the problem, is conflict started, and the conflict was between them and the culture that they were in. See, the more that Jesus ends up in your heart and your life, the more the seed of faith of Christ grows in my heart, the more you recognize that it's countercultural to everything around us. He's different. He does things different. He says things like, the greatest among you will be the least. That is not how we roll in America. And God rolls that way. He actually takes over through weakness. How does that work? He showed his power by being crucified on a cross. How's that for a winning game plan? And this is our God, a countercultural, flip-it-on-its-head kind of God. And there was this lady named Chloe who went to the church in Corinth. And Chloe, there was all this stuff going on in the church. And she sent some people to Paul who was away at this time and just like, hey, we're going through some troubles. We're going through some stuff. Can you, like, give us some direction? And so Paul gets this report, and he realizes they are in the midst of this conflict in themselves between culture and Christ. 
It says in the book of Proverbs, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Do you got a friend like that? I got a few. Do you have a friend that would say, hey, Jeremy, not cool? We usually appreciate that later, not in the moment. And one of the biggest things that was going on in the city of Corinth at that time was they had this whole thing on sexuality that, that they had this underlining belief in the culture that might sound a little bit familiar. Follow your heart. I'm free. Do what you want. And there's a couple of things I wanted to share that God wants us, I think, to, to have seeped into our heart this morning on a few different levels. And it's gut level, heart level, what we believe about life. Like th these beliefs shift us in how we pay attention to things. And the first thing that I want to say is God, God's countercultural belief is this, and it was different to what the Quran said, is that your body is valuable. What you do to your body is valuable. There's a guy I know, uh, a friend of mine, super big buff guy. He's a pastor at a church down in Vancouver, Washington. And this one lady was visiting the church this, that morning, and they're all hanging out and stuff. And she's just really enjoying the people. Like, oh, my goodness, these people are so nice. They're so wonderful. She walks up to the pastor, looks at Brian, and says, Brian, I just got to tell you, I just love your body. And she meant, like, the body of Christ, like the people there. And he was like, this is kind of awkward. Oh, you mean the people. Good, good, good. Not me. Good, good. But anyway... Man, that was, I thought that was funny. I guess it wasn't that funny. Anyway, um, thanks for the courtesy laugh. But the people of Corinth really didn't believe that the body mattered for much. They were so intellectual. They were so filled up on this that when they thought, Jesus saved me, really the body doesn't matter. You can toss it aside. What really matters is my intellectual ascent. What do I believe? How I feel. And what's interesting, in the beginning of the Bible, it says that God, in the beginning, God created man and female in his image, in his likeness. He breathed into man and woman and said, and said, like, boom, I'm putting my likeness in you. He put his fingerprint on each one of us, kind of like an artist signing their painting. Ephesians 2.10 says this, for we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do good things beforehand that we could walk in them. And this says two things. It's really interesting. One, it says that you are designed, you're not a mistake, you're not a copy, but he intentionally crafted you. You are a work of art. Now think about the implications of that in our culture. You are not replaceable. You're not just a part of a community, but you are an individual hand-printed, finger-printed with the fingerprint of God that he designed for a specific purpose. He lovingly crafted you. Not only this, get this. God loves you and your physical body so much that when he died, rose again, he said, I am now going to resurrect your body. He could have given you like, we're just done with this body. We're going to do something else. No, but he takes this body that's fallen from sin, fallen from life, whatever, scratches and whatever on it, and he takes it when I pass away, and he's like, I love what I made so much. I'm going to resurrect that, transform it, and bring it to be, me, 
bring it to me to be with me in heaven forever. He loves not just your mind, not just your spirit, but your physical body. And some of us are so harsh with how we treat ourselves in our physical body because we don't see the value of what God made. He didn't make you a copy of someone else. You are not a mistake of something. You are handcrafted intentionally from the heart of God. Your intellect, your body, all of you. Why would you want to be someone else when a master worker created you to be you? I would also add to that, maybe we should ask him, what is your design for me? What is your purpose for me? I like this in Jeremiah 1.5. The prophet wrote this. He said, God said to me, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. Before you were born, I knew you? Think about it. God has thoughts about you before you were even born. What are those thoughts? What is that design that he has for your life? God is so excited about what he has for each one of us. And he has thoughts. I think it's important that we ask him, what God is your design for my life? When we believe that our body doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how we treat it. But when we know that God use, views us as a masterpiece, and I would say this, views others as a masterpiece, it changes how we treat them. And this is really the crux of what it comes down to with Christ on the inside. We recognize the sacredness and the value of every human life. What a masterpiece. What a beautiful creation that's in each around us, in each one of us. And the second thing, the second point of that is God wanted them to know this, that he lives in you. When you say yes to God, God takes up residence in your life. Now think about that thought. That's crazy. The God of the universe, who's bigger than everything, says, I want to dwell in you. What I love about this passage is this. These people weren't perfect. These people didn't have all their act together. And Paul says to them, God lives in you. If you think that maybe, man, I am disqualified. I've messed up one too many times. God's like, oh, no. Hey, look at me. I'm not done with you yet. I desire to live in you. I desire to have friendship with you. If you made Jesus the leader, your leader, and your trust, he's in you. And why does this matter? Three things. You're not alone. You might feel alone, but that is a lie. Hebrews 13, 5 says, I promise to never leave you, never forsake you. Second thing, he promises to teach you. He will teach you about all things, John 14, 26. And lastly, his presence is a down payment. Ephesians 1.14 says that the Holy Spirit in us is a guarantee, is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance in heaven. It's kind of like an engagement ring. God's saying, I'm in you, and I'm going to take you home someday. 
And there are these moments in the life of a believer where you'll just sense the presence of God in your life and God's little tap on your heart saying, I got you. I'm not going to leave you. You're not alone. I think the thing in that that really is important is this. You become like whoever you spend time with, right? The more we spend time with people, the more we become like them. Someone even said this, you are the average of your top, fi- your, your five or ten people that you most often spend time with. That's how you become. Now think about this invitation that God has brought us into, that he would dwell within us. Could it be that he wants to make us more like him? Now I'm not saying we're gods. I'm not saying that. I am saying, though, that his character, his personhood, how he operates as one that is eternity-focused, that he hates what's evil, that he loves to serve, he loves to give. God within us. The Corinthians were saying things to, to Paul, and they basically said this, look, Paul, I'm allowed to do whatever I want. I'm free. Jesus paid the price for my sin. I can, I'm free. And Paul said this in 6 verse 12. He's like, They said, you say, I am allowed to do anything. But he says this, but not everything is good for you. And then he says, and you even say, I'm allowed to do anything, but I say, but I'm not going to become a slave to anything. There's this huge lie in our culture about freedom, right? We We can be free to do whatever we want, but we forget that it's not the word license, It's the word freedom, and freedom gives you option to choose, but there are so many things that we can become enslaved by in this culture, even things that might be nominally good, but the point is we all have to have a place where we, um, not everything is, is good for our heart. Not everything brings life. The voice of God will say in you, God is holy, look at him. And the voice of the world will say, make yourself your focus. Make your comfort your focus. Make how you feel today your focus. And we can try to do that even with reading the Bible or different stuff, that we could try to line it up with how we feel, with what's going on. And God says, oh, Jeremy, lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes past how you feel. Lift up your eyes past what's going on. Lift up your eyes to me. Recognize I am God. And these Corinthians, there was a crew of them that were still being pretty influenced by their culture, and they were going to the temples, and they were having sex with the prostitutes at the temples. And why were they doing that? Because it was normal. It was cultural. It was what you do. And so their heart was in one way joined with God, and there was this place of the holiness and the beauty of God, and then they were joining in their hearts over here with was anti to God, and you know what you're left with in the middle? You are left in the middle with a heart that is excited but full of shame. You're left in a heart that has moments of passion and moments of apathy. You're left within a life of a, of a pursuit that you can't quite step into. You're, you're in this mix between passion and shame, and it becomes exciting and sad. Numbing and thrilling. And this is the thing about sexual issues of life. When we step outside the bonds of what God has for us in that space, 
What is meant to bring life brings death and disappointment. Now, now some people would say this. You, you might have, whenever we step outside of God's design for us in this area of sex, we receive a wound. And maybe for you, your experience in that space, which survey says probably 80% of us in the room have had some sort of an issue. Maybe, maybe you stepped into the place with pornography. Maybe you were fooling around with somebody in the car and went a little far. Maybe, um, maybe somebody you, you were molested as a child and you got that mark on your life. But whenever we step into a space where that stuff impacts us, it wounds us. And, and here's how it wounds us. It, it wounds us in our, in our mind and it distorts the beauty of sexuality. It, it diminishes its value and the value of others. Two, it, it, it wounds us emotionally. And, and now because we've interacted with this space of sexuality, we, there's this massive power of sexuality that we're not ready for because it's meant to be in the strength of a marriage. But instead, because of out of that, we, we're getting addicted to a dopamine rush and a connection and then a letdown into apathy and shame and disconnection, decreased passion, all the while setting us up for another push. And this is the nature of anything addictive is it starts with the, the passion or the temptation or the thing. And we're in this place of tension because we have needs maybe that need to be met or we're, we're struggling. And then it moves over to this space of, well, I'm going to agree with this. I'm going to step into it. So I act out into that space. There comes the emotional rush. There comes the space of excitement. And then what happens is a letdown into a place of shame, condemnation, frustration. Then we move over to disillusionment. And now here I am wanting to get my needs met. And here is the cycle of all of us. And this is the cycle of the world. It doesn't have to be a sex thing. It can be anything. Is this space of I have needs met. I desire passion. I desire something greater in my life. And so I'm going to try to meet that need through an illegitimate way. Go down here. I get the excitement. Get down here. Get into frustration, disillusionment. And we go around and round and round. And the frustrating part is often we even know we're doing it. And we're like, what the heck am I doing? First time I saw pornography was when I was 15 years old. And I'd be the guy first down running it to the church like, oh, God, help me. But I couldn't conquer it because I kept staying isolated in the whole process. These guys in Corinth were in this weird mix because they'd invited God into their life. And so now there was this mixture of the holy and the, the normal, and these, this, this, the, the ways of the world that was kind of mixing in their heart, and it left them just frustrated. Bible talks about this, where we can have a form of godliness, do all the right stuff, but have no power, no joy. Sexual stuff like that outside of marriage, it, it thrills and then it kills. It fascinates, then it assassinates. The, the Corinthians also said things like this. They would say in verse 13, it said, you say food was made for the stomach and the stomach was for food. In other words, what they were saying was, look, my body was made for sex and sex was made for my body. This is normal. This is natural. But Paul said, yeah, but it wasn't made for sexual immorality or rather sex outside of God's design. 
there's so much pain in this area, so much frustration in this area. Third thing that God wants to say in this space that he's saying to the Corinthians is that sex was meant to bond us to another. And like I just said, the, they were getting bonded to Christ and bonded to the world. And so Paul says this to them, to the people walking through the struggle. Run. Don't fight it. Don't try to be tough guy. Don't try to get everything, you know, be just overcome by, by your willpower. Run. If there's a temptation in our life, it is not worth trying to, like, run. Struggling with pornography, maybe just get rid of your iPhone. It's okay. There's these things called landlines or flip phones. It'll work just fine. And it's a lot cheaper, actually. And, and I would say this, and I'll say this from experience. Sexual sin has a way of deeply impacting us. It, it has a way of frustrating us in our walk with God and our walk with people diminishing our ability to dream and have passion in our life. And God's desire is that you would have life and amazingly joy-filled, hope-filled life. This is God's dream. And in the world, our substitute for the presence of God is this, sex, food, and entertainment. That is the best the world can offer, an amazing movie, a prime rim dinner, and sex, I guess. But God's like, I have something so much deeper, so much better than just the things that will gratify our senses, but go deeper into our heart where real true satisfaction is. And the word I felt like God was saying to me, I was, I was typing this this morning, and the thing I felt like, I put this in all caps in my notes. Would you trust God with your sexuality? I remember I was in my house, and my Bible flip, flipped open. I hadn't met my wife yet. And I was actually reading in Corinthians in another spot, and Paul writes this. He says, it is better for a man not to get married. And I went, no, it's not. I don't like this being alone thing. And I felt like God said to me in my heart that moment, hey, Jeremy, what if I asked you to stay single, not be with anybody? I'd be like, that's a bad idea. Nope, don't want to. And God was really just touching my heart that moment. He's like, but do you trust me? And my honest answer, you guys, my honest answer in that moment was, I want to, not sure. And that space of our heart where there is longings and desires for relationship and connection and fulfillment and all of that stuff, God is saying, would you give that to me? Because I have a better plan for you than your plan. The thing about God's plan is he doesn't always tell us the next step of his plan. He just says, trust me in the first step. And then after that, he gives you the next step and then the next step. I was talking to a guy a little while ago. His name is Jay Thomas. He's a, a worship leader. And uh, he was living in a, he was living, he was, he was, mar was he married? No, he was a single guy. And by day, he was a worship leader, and by night, he was going out to the clubs, and he was hooking up with a bunch of guys. He was living a double lifestyle. And God was talking to him, like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And he looked me in the face, and he said this, Jeremy, I was happy. 
I was enjoying my life. I was enjoying what I was doing. But then he said this, but I was never satisfied. A life running after passion, running after following your heart. I'm going to do what makes my heart happy. Do what makes you happy. You can make yourself happy for a time, but you can never make yourself satisfied. Satisfaction only comes from the one who created us and designed us and has a perfect placement for each one of us. And if I've learned anything about following God, it's often the satisfaction comes after I say, okay, God, here I am. Have your way. I trust your leadership, not mine. Paul's final point, and it's kind of what I'm, kind of what I was just saying, is that you are not your own. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and it says this, you do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price. I mean, God paid with the life of his son. He, he left heaven, leaving all of his glory, all that he was, so that you would not go to hell, but be with him forever. That's a high price. And he says, so for God bought you with a high price, so honor God with your body. God, you've done so much for me. I'm going to let you lead me. I say, okay, God, your way, your plan. As Christians, we don't own the rights to our bodies anymore, our finances anymore, our time anymore. I mean, American culture would say, I'm an individual, I choose. But in Christ, we say, I give up my rights. I give up my space to him. Jesus said that to follow him would be that it would cost us everything. And yet the exchange is that we get all of him. So here's where we are. Proverbs 28, 13 says this. People who conceal their sins will not prosper. Ever tried to hide something? No? Just me? Okay. Here's the crutz. But if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. Now, God's desire is never to shame anybody. He never, his desire is never to make you look bad, but for you to be free. And I've, I've learned this. I wrote this down today. Confession to God brings forgiveness. Confess your sins. God's faithful and just to forgive you all your sins. Confession to people James 5.16 says, confess your sins one to another so that what? You can be healed. Forgiveness happens when we say, hey, God, I blew it. I give this to you. And if you guys could come on up, that'd be awesome. But healing happens when we turn to another brother and sister and say, hey, I blew it. I wonder how many of us are carrying wounds that we never shared with anybody. And that healing's going to happen when you open your mouth and say, hey, uh, I trust you. Can I show you this? The cool thing in the body of Christ is that this is a community of people. I pray more and more, but 
where each one of us, if who recognizes, our for, recognizes how much we need forgiveness, how could we withhold it from someone else? So here's my question, or your question maybe. Who should I tell? <laughs> That's scary, right? Well, here's my question. Who do you trust? Who's somebody in your life that you trust, who you know loves you, is for you? You can show your flaws and your sins and say, hey, I was selfish here. I was lustful there. I was greedy here. This was not okay, can I tell you? And they'll say, yeah, I love you too. I love you. We all need someone that you can trust. If you don't have somebody, I'd love to be that person for you. So would my wife. If you're in a space today of you're like, oh my goodness, like that sexual stuff is totally me. I have had all sorts of experiences or things. This has been off. This has been off. And maybe you're right now going like, I am just freaking out. I'm going to get rejected, condemned, shot to the wall. That is not how God rolls. He comes in loving mercy and he says, ah, that's where you were, but this is where I'm going to take you. I'm going to take you into freedom. I'm going to take you in life, but you got to step into the light with me. So here's what we're going to do today. Joel 2, 12 through 14 says this. This is what the Lord says. Turn to me now while there's still time. Give me your hearts. Come to me with fasting and weeping and mourning. Don't tear your clothes in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. In other words, rip them open. Show God your heart. Return to the Lord, your God, for he is merciful and he's compassionate. Get this, he's slow to anger. Aren't you glad he's slow to anger? I am. And he's filled with unfailing love. Who knows? Perhaps he will turn and give a reprieve, sending you a blessing instead of a curse. God's desire is that he would send us each a blessing instead of a curse. But when I live in the space of mixture, I'm stuck. You'll get forgiveness from telling God, but you'll get healing by telling his people. So here's what we're going to do. Don't worry, I'm not going to do an open mic and make everybody share their sins in front of the stage. But I would say this. I dare you to trust. I dare you to turn to your spouse. I dare you to turn to your friend. I dare you to turn to your youth leader. I dare you to turn to your pastor and say, here's me. Now, what? let's say someone confesses to you and they say something like, here I am and I blew it. You know what you need to do as a believer? You need to recognize that person is coming in humility and an honest heart, and they just want to be pure and right before God, and they want God's blessing on their life. So I challenge you to guard your heart to be a person that says, man, I just, I know I've blown it, and we're going we're gonna to love each other well. So here's what I want to do today. We have these uh, communion wafer things. There's a little piece of bread on the top and then some grape juice. High quality grape juice, just so you know, very high quality. This represents Jesus' body broken for you. For you, for you, for you, for you. This is his body 
represents his body poured out for you, his blood poured out for you for forgiveness of your sins. This changes everything. And I'm going to invite you to come forward. We're going to do this individually. Take off the top and, and just talk to God and say, God, I thank you that your body was broken for me, for my forgiveness, for my, for my healing. And drink the, the grape juice and say, Jesus, thank you that you cleanse me from all my sins, all my stuff. And say, God, and then I would just challenge you to do this. Just start getting specific with God. And say, God, I, I bring to you the pornography. I bring to you the anger. I bring to you uh, what I did in all these different spaces. Just bring it to God. And we're going we're gonna to worship together. And then at the end of this, we're going to pray for each other. We're going to pray. And I'm going to pray the boldness of God over you that you would go to that person you trust and say, here's me. Uh, Rick, can you come here for a second? Um, Rick really blesses my heart because um, can, you, can you just tell briefly, I, I know I'm putting you on the spot. Um, can you just tell me, tell briefly just a little bit of what happened in the last, I don't know, 20 years? share it with everyone. So bear with me for a few minutes. Uh, and obviously it had something to do with pornography. Um, I, Rick Janicki, am a sinner saved by grace. Actually a pornography addict saved by grace. And um, according to Matt Calkins, this is uh, from an article in the Columbian that was written on December 11th of 2011. He says, uh, what's the matter? not comfortable with the topic that's probably because you're a human being in an age where alcoholism garners almost as much sympathy as cancer and where talk show guests get ovations for going three weeks without heroin pornography addicts are typically dismissed as perverts and sickos that's me but you and I are not like that, for you have been chosen by God himself. You are priests of the king. You are the holy pure. You are holy and pure. You are God's very own. All this so that you may show others how God called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. That's 1 Peter 2.9. Pornography has been a part of my life since my preteen years. Unlike Jeremy, I got involved even earlier. You cannot have victory over any sin, addiction, until it's exposed in the light. And by that I mean not only the light of day, but the light of God. If you are, as Jeremy said, if you're hiding behind daytime and thinking that people won't know, they won't. Nobody knows whether you're in it or not. It's a very private thing. It's all, but you, as Jeremy also said, there's no way you will ever be healed unless you expose yourself to others and share your failures with others. Uh, Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And that's kind of where things start. You and I were created by God. I didn't become a Christian until age 35, 
However, I can remember knowing that there was a God and Creator earlier. When I was a junior in college, I had skipped classes to go ski at Lake Tahoe. I was going to uh, school in California, in um, Davis, University of California, Davis. It had snowed the night before, and there was about two feet of soft, beautiful powder. Is anybody a skier here? If you, if you ski and you, you're a fairly decent skier, what you really look for is powder snow. Well, anyway, so I had been skiing most of the morning, and the trails were all getting chopped up, and so I thought, okay, it's time to get away from this. When I, I went clear out away from hitting the trees and out into away from the ski area, and um, I decided I was kind of tired, and I stopped in this meadow, and it was just peaceful and beauty beyond belief. Uh, and at that, at that point, you have to forgive me. When the spirit hits me, I kind of tear up. So anyway, um, I, that was when I realized that there had to be a God. I didn't, that doesn't mean I gave my life to God at that point, but I knew from looking at the beauty around me that there definitely was a God. In 1975, I came back to work after being away for about a month skiing. I had a really cushy job. I was in recreation and I worked all summer, 24 hours a day almost, and then I got all this time off to go do what I wanted to. And so since I loved to ski, I would take a month at a time and use the time I'd earned to go ski and have fun. Definitely self-centered. Um, anyway, um, I got back to work and here was this uh, beautiful young lady uh, in the office that I had never met. Well, that was Kay and six months later we got married. We moved from Sacramento in 1980 uh, to Blaine, Washington and uh, started going to church every Sunday because as a public figure, your image is what counts. Well, my image on the outside looked really good because here I was going to church every Sunday, but my image on the inside hadn't changed a bit. I hadn't confessed anything to anyone. I even got baptized. Anyway, Romans 6.2 says, we died to sin, how can we live in it? it most of us do. I mean, even... Um, I still sin, even to this day, in ways not necessarily pornography, but sin is a conflict that lives within us, within our each of our hearts. And it's really hard to, it's a battle you're going to face till the day you die, is basically the way I look at it now. Anyway, um, in December of 84, um, we moved to Richland, Washington. I got laid off uh, from the job I had up in Blaine. And um, we realized that we had a house in Blaine. We had needed a house in Richland. Kay would have to go back to work. Well, she took our three kids to the park, and God arranged for her to meet a lady uh, who called a friend, and two days later she had a job as an architect in a small local firm. Uh, the owner of the firm was a devout Christian, and... Uh, he said, and was talking to Kay about going to 
of walk to Emmaus, if any of you have heard of that. Well, they told her that if she went, that um, they allowed her to tell me that I couldn't, that she couldn't go unless I went. Well, so I finally said, okay, I'll go because she wanted to go so bad that I, I said I'd go. Well, on the second day of that um, walk to Emmaus, uh, we had, they had an altar call, and I ended up at the altar, and I spent the next hour on my knees crying before the Lord. That was when I finally gave my heart. Our heritage tells us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. I got myself into this. I can surely get myself out. When we continually fail to get out of the out, the devil tells us we will never get out. We're not good enough, strong enough, or smart enough, and we have sinned way too much. The world tells us that if we are good enough at school, sports, work, and life, we can overcome whatever encounters life throws at us. I'm sure we've all been there with that, too. So I thought being a nationally ranked athlete in one sport and a national champion in another, and being, being an honor graduate from high school and college, and at that point managing a $500 million procurement group, that I, could, I should be able to surely get myself out of pornography. Smarts doesn't have anything to do with it. It's all about confessing your sins to others and letting God work in your heart. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, in part, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. So if some temptation has seized you, it's seized everybody else, most likely. Today in the world, in a Moody Bible Institute publication in February of 2012, states, uh, and these are old statistics, this is kind of, Jeremy is giving you an update on that already this morning, but at that point, uh, every second, more than $3,000 is spent on pornography. Nearly 30,000 internet uh, users view it. Every 39 minutes, a new pornography video is created. The pornography industry pulls in about 100 billion in annual revenues worldwide. At least 4.2 million websites, or 12% of the total, are pornographic. Every day, internet users make 68 million pornographic search engine requests, or about one quarter of the total. While men are the main consumers of pornography, at that point, one of every three visitors to an adult website was a woman. So it doesn't matter who you are. Current estimates indicate that well over 70% of men and well over 50% of young women are in pornography. Well, finally getting caught by my wife and realizing there was no way I could win this battle with pornography on my own, I went to my pastor. It was then that I found there were other men in church that had the same challenge and that a pastor in Oregon, Ted Roberts, had developed a program called Pure Desires. The program helped free him and has helped free others from this addiction. It was at that point that I decided I needed to do something, and I started a group in that church and have been teaching 
and helping others to deal with pornography in their lives ever since. Um, if we don't face and deal with our own brokenness, we can never be of use to God. And without God, nothing else really matters. And I just found this piece of scripture in the Passion Testament from John 15, 4. It reads, so you must remain in life union with me, for I remain in life union with you. For as a branch severed from the vine will not bear fruit, so your life will be fruitless unless you live your life intimately joined to mine. So that's what I would challenge each of you with this morning. Change your life intimacy. It's not you that's important, it's God. Thanks, Rick. That takes some guts, huh? What would happen if a generation of people would get up and say, I am so tired of living frustrated. I'm so tired of walking one step towards God, two steps back, living in this straddling of the line. What would it look like if we would say, I'm just so done. I'm so done with all that. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to be free? I'll ask it one more time. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to be free? Hey, can we all just say this together? Jesus, would you forgive me <laughs> of all my sin, all the lust? Now, I'll say it a little louder. All the lust. I don't want it. <laughs> all the pride all the greed, all that junk. Would you cleanse me today? Let's say it again. Would you cleanse me today? God, I pray for everyone with a guilty heart, a condemned mind. God, I pray for your healing over their mind and their heart today, that they would know freedom in Jesus today over every sin, over every sickness. God, I pray for anyone that's been molested, God, or walked through trauma in any of those spaces. God, would you bring healing today? God, would you bring a healing to hearts today? God, of all the stuff that we walk through, you're the God that forgives us and the God that heals us. And now put a hand on your heart. All right, Holy Spirit, I'm asking for boldness to strike in every heart in this room that they wouldn't just ask you for forgiveness, but they would go to someone they trust and say, here I am, I need healing. And God, we also pray for everyone in this room, God, that maybe someone comes to us. God, we pray that we might come and receive them with your love and encouragement and a hand of healing. And everyone said, <laughs>